I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversations, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. This is a very sacred episode. My guest for today is Don Blackwell, and wait till you hear what he has to talk about. Our conversation is so beautiful. It it feels poetic to me, and I'm not taking the credit for that. That's all Don. We talk about dads and daughters. We talk about how at the beginning as a support person, you're often coming from a place of fear and ignorance before you can come to a place of understanding and openness. And how when people are struggling with an eating disorder, how love in whatever form that can be shown is so critical for the person who's suffering. As I always say, let's just jump right in. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to what I think is going to be a very, very special episode of Recovery Bites. I want to introduce all of you to my dear friend and colleague in some fashion, Don Blackwell. Don, welcome to the show. Good morning, Karen. It's really a pleasure to be back with you. Don, it's such an honor to be having this conversation with you and, you know, for me to have the the luxury of being able to see you on Zoom because I haven't seen you in so long. Don, tell the listeners a little bit about who you are, what you do, and just your daughter. I mean, I could go on forever. So you start. Yeah, Karen, um, it's such a privilege to be part of um, your podcast. I, I'm, I'm an avid follower and you know that I'm I'm one of your number one fans. There are many of them, but um, I guess by way of background, I mean, I'm principally a dad. Um, My daughter uh, back in 2006 um, developed a rather severe eating disorder. Um, It was very acute in its presentation in the sense that we found out about it in a very acute stage. And um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's what brings me to the eating disorder discussion. I I think I started out the, sa- the same way that most parents do who find themselves confronted with an eating disorder. Um, I was mostly ignorant about it, about what an eating disorder is. I was fearful. Um, all of the emotions, I think, that 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 uh, come with that um, realization that you have a loved one that's suffering from an eating disorder. And, um, you know, I think as importantly for me, at least it, it began a very significant period of sort of 
self-discovery for me. Um, I learned a tremendous amount as a result of my daughter's suffering. And um, I, I ultimately wrote a book about it, uh, which is really a collection of letters that I wrote to Ashley in the course of her um, eating disorder and her recovery. And that prompted me in turn to get invited, have the opportunity to speak um, nationally and on webinars and other conferences, principally about the dad-daughter relationship and how that factors into the whole eating disorder journey. And uh, then I did a significant amount of writings on top of that. Um, I started my own uh, eating disorder support group for loved ones, which I managed for some period of time. And let's see, most recently, I guess, I organized uh, the Legacy of Hope Summit in January of 2020. Um, I invited about uh, two dozen of the leading eating disorder experts in the country to come together for a weekend. And... Uh, just sort of explore some of the challenges that still exists, unfortunately, in the eating disorder space. And that was an extraordinary experience that resulted in the issuance of a report and recommendation that hopefully will at least um, facilitate discussions going forward and serve as a bit of a blueprint for um, how we can improve uh, the delivery of services and a greater understanding of eating disorders in the country. So that's me. Okay. I love the way you're like, so that's me. Okay. <laughs> that's a lot. And that's phenomenal. Um, so I do want to let everyone know the name of the book is Dear Ashley. Is is there something other after Dear Ashley? Um, it's Dear Ashley, uh, Father's Reflections and Letters to His Daughter on Life, Love, and Hope. That's right. That's right. And that's why we are going to talk about that today on the on this podcast, especially about love. And so, Don, you you are such you're you're such a heartfelt person. You and I are very similar like that. We're sort of motivated from love. Um, and I appreciate that at, that you said at the beginning you it's not that you didn't have the love love excuse me everyone but you didn't have the education so there was more i'm going to i'm going to use the word frustration anger judgment things that that come along with this process but ultimately underneath all of it we need to provide love so it, that's just our jumping point where would you like to begin yeah you know karen i think it's important and what i like to sort of highlight from the outset is that I, I really strongly believe that for all of their similarities, everybody's eating disorder journey is very different. It's very individualized. I think that everyone comes um, into the eating disorder um, discussion with a, a very unique set of circumstances, whether they be the individual themselves, the sufferer, the family dynamic, the, the social circumstances, um, so I think it's important for people to understand when you and I talk about our family's experience that it is our family's experience. Um, and I think there are some things that I've learned along the way, hopefully, that can be beneficial. Um, but 
you know, ours took a, a very specific path and it may not be the same as, as other people's. But I think that if I sort of start from the position that um, eating disorders kind of have their birthplace um, in what is sort of a, a, a fundamental uh, sense of unworthiness, of loneliness, of isolation, and, and really at the end of the day of this um, belief of what I like to refer to as unlovability. And it's sort of extraordinary when I, to, for, for me to even say those words when I think about my daughter because, and she's not that different in the sense that here is this remarkable young woman, you know, probably the most creative, one of the brightest people I've ever known. And for me to even use words like unworthiness or unlovable um, or lonely in the context of this young woman, as I look back, is, is pr pretty extraordinary. But it's true. It's true. And forgive me for interrupting. Um, and, and as you said, we're speaking from our own unique experiences. There are times when, when my mother will listen to the podcast and she'll still say, I cannot believe you had such a low sense of self, self, low self-confidence, unworthiness, self-criticism, self-hatred. She's, first of all, one of the things my mother says still to this day is she never saw it. She didn't know until I actually became, you know, started be becoming behavioral. And so it, it's hard to see somebody's inner psyche. It's hard to see somebody's low self-esteem. And it's painful to know that, that someone that you love is experiencing it. You know, one of the one of the things that's most difficult for me is, and and you'll excuse me and your audience at various points because I'm just an emotional person, and I realize when I start um, looking back, like we're doing today, that there's this river of emotion that is always just just below the surface with me. So I, you know, I really it's in, inevitable that I'm <laughs> we'll get emotional at some various points in our conversation. But, you know, Karen, one of the things that's so difficult for me is I, I should have seen it. I mean, and I say that because I lived in that space myself. I mean, I'm the child of an alcoholic mother, um, a very unapologetic, unrepentant, never wanted to seek any help um, alcoholic mother. And so, you know, I, I say in the book that I was emotionally orphaned as a child and it's true. Um, but there were, and so there were a lot of challenges associated with that, you know, this deep seated feeling of unworthiness because the person who's really tasked, if you will, with providing that sense of, of worthiness, that, you know, booster of all things self-esteem in, in children just was absent in my upbringing. And so as a result of that, I grew to have this sixth sense for similarly situated hearts. And, and to think that this young woman 
who was is probably the most important person in my life was living under my roof with me doing everything I thought was necessary to avoid duplicating that was experiencing some of those same emotions is really difficult for me to accept sometimes. I'm going to say yes, because I'm not going to tell you that your experience is not correct. <laughs> and Don, you know that people that are struggling with eating disorders are masterminds at covering and masking absolutely discomfort. And so even as someone, you saying yourself, you experienced it growing up, this, this not feeling worthy or connected or loved, it is... It is like it is one of my greatest stage acts, I guess, of of me being, you know, when I had my eating disorder of being like, I no, I'm fine. Everything's really good. Oh yeah, life is really good, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it was my best performance, shall we say. And so even under your own roof, Ashley was was able to do that. Oh yeah, there's no question about it. I mean, Karen, I still have a distinct recollection of standing at the top of the driveway as she's heading off to the University of Southern California, thinking to myself, this chick's got the world on a string. I mean, you know, National Merit Scholar, AP Scholar of Distinction, you know, prolific writer, I mean, in two motion pictures before she graduated from high school, uh, started her own theater company. I'm thinking, okay, you know, what's the next stop? And yet there was this, there definitely was this deep seated um, sense of unworthiness, of unlovability. And, and that's what sort of has prompted me to really um, fine tune my focus to talking about love that, and really having had the privilege over the last decade or more of really carefully listening to the hearts of a lot of eating disorder sufferers, which I've really had the privilege to do. And, um, you know, there's some common threads there. I, I also want to point out, this is where we say it's never one thing that causes an eating disorder. It's also, it can't be one thing that protects you from it. So you could be you know, and, and I'm saying this somewhat sarcastically, but the best parent in the world and, and Ashley is not immune to human suffering and the media and her peers and pressure and things like that. So this is why, this is also why when parents say it's my fault, I did this, I did that. I say, you're not that powerful. There's a lot of things that go into an eating disorder. And this is evidence. You can come from a very nurturing environment, a very loving home, and still go out in the world not feeling a secure sense of self. Yeah, there's no question about that. And there's also no question, Karen, as, as I prefaced all of this and saying that, you know, 20 years ago, I was not anything approaching the guy that I am today. You know, um, people... I wrote a piece in, on my blog one time that said the lucky one, and it, it, it emanated from a presentation that I gave, uh, and I had a young woman come up to me after I finished speaking, and she said to me, oh, Don, 
your daughter is so lucky to have you for a dad. And, and I, you know, I thanked her because that was the appropriate thing to do. But, but the reality of it is, is that I'm the lucky one. I mean, this young woman um, has, has redefined who I am as, as a dad, um, as, as a grandfather now. I mean, as a man, completely changed the landscape of my life. Um, so, you know, I, I don't, I'm not going to, I don't want to create the impression that, oh yeah, this guy is so amazing. How did, how, how could something like that possibly happen? I mean, no, that's not, that's really not it at all. I, I started out in the same place. I think um, most parents do, which is struggling to understand the why of it, um, you know, questioning their own parental skills, uh, their, their approach to things, uh, being fearful, feeling hopeless, all of those kinds of things, um, being hypercritical, judgmental. I mean, we could, the adjectives could go on forever. Um, I, in fact, I, I read things that I write now and I think to myself, would Don 10 years ago have really been open to hearing these words, to really, you know, allowing them to take up resonance in their soul? Not entirely sure about that, which is sort of why I do what I do. This is also when we talk about when we talk about a system, whether it's a biological family system, a created family, whatever the system is. Often, when the client comes to to treatment, it's often that they are considered the identified patient. They're the one in the family, fix him or her, or they, you know, fix, it's, they've got this problem, blah, blah, blah. And then we notice if the family is open, it's a ripple effect and the, everybody's eyes open to a different perspective everybody's heart opens to a different way of living and loving and doing things. And so it's not just the client who goes through these transformations, but I also want to say that the, the, the supports have to be open. This is, this is not, you know, support, sit back and wait for your loved one to recover. And then you, you know, and then enter back into their life. And so I guess my, my question is like, what, I don't know. What do you say to a, a to parents who walk in and say, uh, "It's my fault. I did it," or "It's her. It's them. They they. I need them to get better. I, that's it." What do you say when a parent says, "I need them to get better"? Yeah, uh, you know, I I I'm I'm pretty sure I <laughs> I'm pretty sure I uttered those words at some point in the process, um, and and I I think you really have put your finger on something there. People are quick to sort of identify the person who's struggling as the one who quote unquote needs fixing. But this is an extraordinarily complicated uh, animal that we're talking about here. This is, this is not a fix it situation, really. This is, it is a journey. I mean, I think that that's the, the best way to put it. And, you know, Karen, I think, I think spending five minutes on the why of all of this is a waste of five minutes. 
that's not to say I didn't spend a long time asking myself why, you know, trying to scour the internet and every expert I could get my hands on to find out the answer to the why, but the why is irrelevant, really. It's the path forward that matters. And it really is, this is going to sound a little bit strange to say, but it is an extraordinary opportunity for everyone in that individual's sphere of influence to um, grow immeasurably if they will allow themselves to really sort of pay attention and not be so eager to jump in and say, how are we going to fix this? You know, what, what about this? What about that? I don't understand this. You know, what, what happened where I'm concerned is this journey to a, a, a much deeper sense of vulnerability and emotional intimacy, connectivity, um, just as, as you articulated it, it's an opening of your heart. I have a million dollar question for you, though, and I know how I can answer it as the therapist, because I'm not, I don't have the same connection with a loved one. How do you hold that love, compassion, vulnerability, all of that? Because I'm sure right now parents are listening and saying, yes, and my loved one is defiant, lying, very sick, not, you know, whatever it is. So how do we stay in that place? Because I know my parents were very frustrated with my with my eating disorder. And part of the frustration was fear. And part of the frustration is, I got to be honest with you, Don, I was kind of a, I was a pain in the ass. I mean, I was, I wasn't like the kindest person to hang out with or go anywhere with. And so now what? Because we've got this beautiful concept of, like you said, vulnerability, open heart, love with a really, really complicated disorder. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Karen, that's, I think, you know, if you, if you spend any time on the Facebook boards of, of parents who are struggling with this, um, the parents who find their way to my doorstep for one reason or another, one of the most, they usually find their way to me and these boards when they're exhausted you know, when the venom is being spewed in ways that are unimaginably difficult, exhausting, suck the life out of the room, out of the family unit, out of the marital relationship or whatever relationship, you know, may be the predominant one. So how do you deal with that? What's love's response to that? And how in the world do you keep loving in the face of that? Listen, I didn't learn that skill overnight. I mean, the natural reaction of any anyone who's trying to love someone with an eating disorder is when they're confronted with this with this hyper defiance, this, you know, just Linda Blair like, you know, energy um, is to get defensive, to yell back at them, to, you know, express feelings like, how could you be so ungrateful? I mean, look at everything I'm doing for you. This is totally disrupting my life. Get your act together. You know, we've had enough of this, you name it. So I think the starting point is, 
um, to rec- to really take a step back and gain an understanding of what's happening there. And, you know, one of the things that's happening there, which I like to tell parents is to envision like a boiler relief valve. I mean, there has to be an understanding that um, these words really aren't directed at the loved one at all. These are words that are typically being spoken by the eating disorder sufferer and directing them inward towards themselves. This is what, this is the voice they're hearing 24 hours a day on loop. And the reality is that the human body can only sustain that level of self-abuse in my mind for so long before it has to release it somewhere. So where does it choose to release it? Well, unfortunately, it's typically at the target that's right in front of them. Oh, I'm sorry for interrupting. And again, I always use my experience. The target that was right in front of me was the safest target. And, and I don't know how, much, how I feel about using that word so often for me to release the pressure because I would never dare outside of my home show the world that I had emotions, that I had vulnerabilities, that I had fears. So to the outside world, I had one way. And then my parents got the wrath of everything else, everything that was wrong in this world they got, and then add an eating disorder to it. And so supports whoever they are, whether they're parent, partner, whatever, they are, they, it, they are being bombarded by this intense emotion that unfortunately at at the time I was sick, I didn't know where else to turn it to. And, and I think I I've said this before that my parents went to a support group once and, you know, my eating disorder started 30 years ago and they didn't have treatment centers then. And they sent my parents to a support group. It was a very young therapist, maybe even an intern, and didn't really know how to support hold groups very well. And my parents, who love me more than anything in the world, my mother said in the group, sometimes I just want to put my hands on Karen's shoulders and shake her and be like, just stop this. And another woman in the group said, shame on you. How dare you want to hurt your child? Which, Don, you and I both know, that is not what my parents were saying. At all. My parents were saying the opposite. We, 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 we just love her. And the group leader never did anything. She just let that comment fall to the center of the room. Everybody paused. And then a new topic was brought up. My parents never went to that support group again because they were so ashamed of themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we have to be realistic and recognize that when you are confronted with the level of emotions that we're talking about, um, it's extraordinarily difficult to sort of maintain, um, let alone to, to respond in, in what I consider to be sort of a loving way. So I, I guess the second part of it is a recognition that, um, you know, part of what the parent's thinking is, how could this person who, I, who was so loving like six months ago suddenly have turned into this, you know, incredibly hostile, abusive 
person. And, and I think part of it is to also recognize that the person who's yelling at you is is still your loved one. I mean, that heart that six months ago, two years ago, was so loving that you remember so well that you can't reconcile with this picture that you're seeing really hasn't gone anywhere. It's that that heart is sort of buried under this mountain of distortions and lies and, um, you know, fallacies sort of fighting to to catch a breath. Um, and there that that emotion is coming from this place of really unimaginable pain. And, you know, there's nothing that you're going to be able to do or say in that circumstance that's likely to quiet that it has to come out, you know. I, this this is such a I, I feel like it's such a hallmark question, like, what did you do to take care of yourself? But. I have to imagine, Don, there's there's a lot of stuff that that as a support person or as a parent, you because you, you can't always hold it. You can't always say, OK, well, Ashley needs to get this out. So as her parent, I'm going to hold it because you're as you're a, a friend, a father, a colleague, uh, you know, you're all these other. Th- so so how do you hold that and take care of yourself so then you can go back to Ashley with your heart from your heart place? Yeah. I mean, that, that is a very challenging question. You know, I hear it openly discussed in, in, in all kinds of settings. And, um, I I don't have a good answer for that, Karen, because if I'm to be honest, I wasn't terribly good at the self-care piece. I mean, for me, it was taking long walks. Um, you know, I got in the habit of walking five miles a day literally six days a week. Um, You know that I love to write. So writing has always been an outlet for me. Um, And it's, and often I combine the two, I would use my walks to sort of um, gather my thoughts to, to sort of gain some perspective. Because it's easy to lose perspective. It's easy to construe what's going on with your loved one as a personal attack and that's where things really start going off the rails you you can't really you can't tap into the kind of um what what i often refer to as sacrificial love that i'm talking about if you're viewing all of this as either a personal attack or um, some kind of distorted statement about you as a parent or any of those things that it's not. Um, so I guess writing and walking were the principal things for me. What What is it like for you being, you know, dads and daughters? I mean, I know there there, we, we live in this culture where, and it's a stereotype, it's always assumed like the mother is the one who takes the child to all the appointments and does all the things. And, you know, and now here you are as the dad. And I, I know, you know, my friend, Mike Poland, he, he also is one of my dads and daughters <laughs> loves who I love. Um, it's, it's not a big community though, or has it become big? I guess I want to ask that. Yeah, I think it hasn't. Karen, I mean, I was 
so so glad to hear Mike and Mary on your show several weeks back. I think I even reached out to you about that because um, Mike and I sort of um, crossed paths at about the same time. Our, both of our daughters were struggling. Um, and yeah, I, you know the backstory. I mean, I, I was privileged to be invited to speak at NIDA's national conference in 2012. They had a sold out um, registrant of 620 people, I think. And I was supposed to present on dads and daughters and I got up there to speak. And in that 620 um, some odd group of people, there was one dad there. It was Mike. Yep. And, uh, you know, and Karen, I literally was beside myself. That really was the precipitating event of my sort of redirecting my focus to try and really bring dads more into the fold. I just had so many moms come up to me after that talk and just tell me these stories about how the their husband or their ex-husband or their significant other were just not connecting with this process at all and in fact doing harm not intentionally completely un, un, unknowingly um, and I just feel so strongly that there is this deep-seated um need on the part of daughters to connect with their fathers um, in many instances. And, you know, Karen, the reality is there's a corresponding desire, my belief, on the part of most dads to have a much deeper connection with their daughters. But it's difficult. I say it's difficult because what's needed to get there, at least from my um, non-clinical perspective is a level of emotional intimacy and vulnerability that's just not intuitive to dads. It wasn't modeled for most dads. It certainly wasn't modeled for me, but there is a pathway to get there. And the benefits of getting there, they're indescribable. This is a very generic question, but what is your relationship like with Ashley now? And and I say generic because I don't want to make this assumption like, oh, now you have this open and beautiful <laughs> and loving relationship. But, you know, one of the reasons why I do this podcast is because, you know, there's still conflict in life and whatnot. But, you know, how has your relationship grown and shifted throughout this process? Yeah. You know, one of the turning points for, for us, Karen, was... Um, Ash, one of Ashley's therapists invited her to write a letter to me that was designed to try and explain to me in my infancy of this journey towards greater self-awareness uh, what, it, what it was like for her to live with an eating disorder. And I, I will never forget the day that um, my wife and I were invited into the session where Ashley read this letter to me. I was completely blown away. I mean, it fundamentally changed my life to hear this young woman who I thought I knew so well, you know, share pieces of her that were so bruised, you know, so that there was this level of of feeling inadequate, of unworthiness, of 
a sense of, of shame and guilt and um, having disappointed me that was just so hard for me to process. And so, you know, we fast forward 15 years later. I mean, thankfully, and rather miraculously, Ashley's still alive, which, you know, is a beautiful thing. She got married um, in October um, and is now, you know, living a lot closer to us than she has been for a long time. So we get to see her every so often. Um, You know, I like to tell people, Karen, that in many ways, Ashley is the female embodiment of me. I mean, we, we are so much alike. Um, and I think to kind of circle back to your question, I think Ashley has been very open in sort of acknowledging this transformation that's occurred in me. Um, she hasn't fully embraced the fact that she deserves a lot of credit for that because um, there are those remnants, you know, that still don't allow her to fully embrace those kinds of things. But um, yeah, I mean, she still deals with emotions at both high ends of the spectrum. So, you know, there are really, I don't at all. I'm totally balanced 24 hours a day, seven <laughs> days noticed a week. That. Yeah. Noticed yeah. That. I mean, I'm one of those, you know, miracle child. <laughs> I have to tell you, Don, that hearing you say that that letter created a fundamental change in your sense of self in everything, those letters, by the way, there are many interventions, but I have always found those letters, letter to parent. And when I've said to clients, I want you to write a letter to your mom or your dad or both. And it's up to you if we're going to give that letter to them. Let's start with just a letter where you can say anything that you want. Doesn't mean we're going to give it to them. And sufferers do end up sharing these letters. Do you realize the vulnerability the rawness that Ashley was, was sharing with you that, and the fact that you received it and accepted it and supported it is, was probably a fundamental change for both of you. She literally invited you into the darkness and that's powerful. It is powerful. And you, you know, my affinity for letter writing in general, um, it's evident in the book, but it's evident in the way that I, walk through um, Ashley's journey. And, and it's something that I really encourage parents to strongly consider. You've been in the room with me at some of these conferences where I've shared my belief that one of the greatest gifts that a parent can give to their child is to write letters. And, you know, I encourage dads to adopt that practice of writing letters. I have like four specific letters that I encourage them to write. Um, in sequence to sort of open the door to this deeper sense of connection with their daughters. And I just have gotten some tremendous feedback from people who have, you know, adopted that suggestion and done that. Can you share with listeners what those four letters are? Because letter writing is so powerful. It, it, it is so unbelievable. So go ahead, Don, if you can share that. Yeah. So um, 
one of the reasons I believe that letters are so powerful is that the spoken word sort of evaporates in the moment. I mean, it might linger in the air a little bit, but um, especially when you're speaking in, in times that are emotionally charged or coming off of a period that, that was just full of emotion, spoken words just get lost. Um, so I wrote a lot of notes. I wrote a lot of letters. There was a period of time where I was writing to Ashley almost every day. And it wasn't, it wasn't always something of consequence. But what I came to realize was that when you give someone a letter, if they're not in a place where they're open to receiving it, they can tuck it away and they can read it when they are open to it. And what I discovered because I did this with both our daughter and our son, ultimately, was they keep those letters. Those letters have a permanence about them. And because they have a permanence, they have a power about them that the spoken word really could never duplicate. So the first letter that I encourage um, dads to write, but it, it could equally apply to whoever the loved one is, is just a profession of love. That's sort of what I capture it. And that's the easiest of the four to write from my perspective, because you just need to express the fact that you love this person unconditionally and however is, make, is comfortable for you to do that. The second one is really the most challenging of the four. I have labeled it a request for understanding. Um, this is a realization that it, this is in the father-daughter context, that daughters tend to put their fathers on a very high pedestal. And they tend to have these perceptions of their fathers, which are um, sort of uh, very idealized. Like we can't possibly do anything wrong. So everything I do wrong has got to look like a disappointment to my dad. And that's why I think this is the most important of the letters. Um, you know, daughters are fearful of disappointing dads, of falling short of what they perceive to be their dad's expectations. So in this letter, the dad needs to acknowledge his humanity. I like to say that as obvious as it may be to everyone else in the world, it's time for dad to get honest with their daughter about their own shortcomings about their limitations, share in a, from a very vulnerable place what, you know, what some of those shortcomings are. Um, because the daughter needs to understand that their dad is imperfect, that he's made mistakes, that some of those mistakes likely pertain to their relationship with their daughter. Um, and I, I also suggest using this letter to ask for the daughter's understanding and forgiveness if there are specific issues that need to be addressed. Um, then the third letter is what I call words of affirmation and encouragement. Um, this is one where the dad or the loved one really needs to articulate that they're proud of their daughter. Um, in some instances, it might be the first time that the father has actually openly expressed what he thought the daughter most certainly had to have understood, that is that he's proud of her, but you can't 
take those things for granted. You can't just leave breadcrumbs and hope they find their way to the truth that you're looking for them to understand. So this is an opportunity for the dad to point out all of what he or the loved one deems to be just special characteristics of their daughter. And the last letter is a commitment to the future. Um, and this is one in which the dad uh, needs to make it clear to the daughter whether they're living under the same roof or not, that they're not going anywhere, that he's fully committed to her, that he will continue to be there for her, and that she can count on him. Because my experience has been that one of the aspects of eating disorders is that um, the person who's battling the eating disorder feels like, okay, well, these folks love me now that I'm sick, but what's going to happen if I actually heal? And this letter is designed to make it infinitely clear that this is not about, this is not a commitment to be there until you get better. <laughs> this is a commitment that's based on a much more deep-seated um, love and emotional connection. So those are the four. Don, they're, they're wonderful. They're beautiful. You know, I don't know why I keep going to the image of the cover of your book. <laughs> and, you know, all these things that you're saying to express and the vulnerability for, you know, every, first of all, everyone needs to get the book because it's so beautiful. I've, I've had it for years. You, you know, I love it. The picture of you, you're standing in a swimming pool and Ashley is in front of you, just getting ready to jump. Like you're holding your arms out. And as I'm reflecting on this picture, nobody imagined life was going to twist and turn into this. Her soul is shining in that picture. The two of you are beaming at each other. You know, the innocence of, of before everything got coded. It just, I, I don't know why I just even mentioned that, but it's just what I, I keep seeing that in my head right now. Yeah. And I think it's a critical point, Karen, and, and one that, that maybe is a, a good way to start um, bringing our conversation to a close, which is that I really think there's that it's critical for loved ones to find ways to reconnect um, the person struggling with moments like the one that is captured on the cover of that book. Um, because the reality is the one you just expressed. I mean, in that moment, neither one of us could have possibly imagined what the, what the what our world was going to look like, um, you know, just 10 years down the road, 12 years down the road from that photograph. But that's the essence. I mean, that's the essence of Ashley in that moment. And I think finding photographs, um, finding people who can help to redirect the heart of the eating disorder sufferer back to those periods of simplicity 
that's it. It is. It's a simplicity. It's 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 almost like just as I said before, the layers and layers and layers of coding and trauma and media and pressure and all this stuff. It's just a simple, pure love, right? Yeah, it's finding your it's finding your way back to your authentic self. I mean, you know, I tell people you you didn't come into this world with an eating disorder. Yes, you didn't you're right. come into this world with a substance abuse or abuse disorder. You came into this world with this beautiful subset of authenticity. I mean, things that make you uniquely beautiful that cannot be duplicated. It's not about changing anything, Karen. It's about finding your way back to that. It's about finding your way back to the unadulterated essence of who you are, who you were meant to be. You know, I tell people the world doesn't need less of you. The world needs more of you. I mean, you're hiding one of the world's greatest gifts from the world. The person in that picture, you know? I do know. I You do know because you've, you've taken that journey. I've taken that journey and I've looked into the souls of many beautiful other human beings staring back at me that don't feel that. And, and I can't express it enough. Karen, when I was preparing for our talk today, I found um, a letter that I had written to loved ones that I think captures a lot of what we were talking about today. And I wondered if, if there might be enough time for me to share this. There is more than enough time. And I think it's a beautiful way to close out the episode. So I received a note um, at about two o'clock in the morning from a young woman who I was working to encourage at the time. And um, she was... Uh, an adult uh, who had a, a pretty strong support staff around her. And she was openly wondering to me if her most recent stumble was going to be the straw that broke the will and the patience of those who, in her words, had up to that point so heroically and patiently supported and encouraged her. And I sort of wondered to myself how many times Ashley must have shared that feeling. Uh, because she had a pretty rough journey. And it that conversation, that exchange prompted me to write this note. Dear loved one, I know that you're weary. I know that you're frustrated. I know that you're angry. I know that you're wondering what you did to deserve this. I know you don't think you can do this for even one more minute let alone another day, week, month, or year. I know you're losing patience. I know you want your life back. I know you want your loved one back. I know you're asking yourself when, if this nightmare will ever end. I know you feel like you're running out of options. I know you're scared. I know there are times when you feel helpless. I know you're starting to lose hope, but here's the thing. Despite how they may act, 
or what they may say in the grip of these insidious diseases at any given moment. Your loved one feels those things too. Weariness, frustration, anger, guilt, shame, fear, helplessness, hopelessness, confusion, and would give anything to have their life back and you yours. The last thing they need is to feel more of it, to be given another reason to believe that the lies their eating disorder or addicted mind have been telling, screaming at them all this time are true, that they are a burden, that they are worthless, that they are unlovable, that the world, even your world, would be a better place without them in it. You are the only truth that stands between your loved one and those lies. The good news is you are stronger than you think, more courageous and resilient than you realize, and have a greater capacity for patience and empathy than you ever imagined. More importantly, while in this moment it may not seem or feel like it, your ability to provide your loved one with love and emotional support are actually limitless and their transformative power unparalleled. Rest in that truth, draw strength from it. And if, as I suspect, you've already gone the extra mile, pause for a minute or two to catch your breath. You've earned it. Then keep going, keep loving, keep believing keep the flame of hope alive because the magic may well be in the next one wishing you peace and strength i just need to pause for a moment don you have always been a very very special human being to me i've always felt very very honored to have you in my life and to know you and this just took it to a whole nother level. And what I want to say is that it's so beautiful, so necessary for loved ones to hear, so hard at times for loved ones to internalize. And yet it is possible that they will all get through it. And I, I just, I can't thank you enough for that letter, for everything. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you for being here, Don. Yeah, thanks, Karen. It's so great to see you and to spend some time with you. I really have enjoyed it. Me too. Me too. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to seeing each and every one of you for the next show. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybitespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at recoverybitespod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show, or to submit a guest request, please visit KarenLewisEDC.com forward slash podcast signup 
to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery Bite. Thanks for listening.